Welcome to On the Ballot with Ballotpedia, where we take a closer look at the week's top political stories. Ballotpedia connects people to politics by providing neutral, nonpartisan, and reliable information on our government, how it works, and where it's headed. We're here to give you the facts so you can form your own opinion. Today, we'll be previewing the August primaries, as well as the state executive offices on the ballot in November. Welcome to On the Ballot. August is right around the corner, and if you thought primary season was over, think again. Next month features 16 primaries, the second busiest primary month of the year. For a full list of August primaries, you can search our site for elections calendar. In the meantime, we've invited one of BP's brightest here to break them down. Joining me now is staff writer Mish Chantil. Hi, Mish. Hi, Victoria. So again, as I mentioned, there are plenty of interesting primaries for us to talk about, but the month will also feature several primaries directly affected by redistricting. So let's start there. So redistricting has had a pretty big effect on how primaries are playing out this year. For a quick recap on how redistricting works, all United States representatives and state legislators are elected from political divisions called districts. The states redraw districts every 10 years following the U.S. Census. The federal government requires that districts have to have an equal population and must not discriminate on the basis of race or ethnicity. And who's in charge of redistricting usually depends on the state. So it can be the legislator, can be the commission outside of the legislator, or it can be a combination of the legislature and a commission. Listeners have probably heard of the word gerrymandering before, which is when electoral district lines are drawn to favor one political party, individual, or constituency over another. So due to redistricting, Ohio will hold a primary for its state legislature on August 2nd. The primary for Congress and other statewide offices was back in May, and New York will hold their statewide congressional and state Senate primary on August 23rd. The primary for U.S. Senate, state executive, and state assembly offices happened in June. There are several battleground primaries in August we've got our eye on that I'd like to dig into if we can. One of those is the Michigan governor's race. Who is lining up in the GOP primary to challenge the incumbent Democratic governor Gretchen Whitmer? Michigan is holding a Republican gubernatorial primary. So six candidates are running in total to compete against the incumbent governor, Gretchen Whitmer. The fundraising and polling leaders are Tudor Dixon, Ryan Kelly, Kevin Rink, and Garrett Soldano. Five candidates failed to make the ballot after state officials found petition circulators of those campaigns had forged signatures on their nominating petitions. One of those candidates, James Craig, is running as a write-in. Yeah, that was quite a surprising event to happen in that race. Out in Alaska, I saw that we've got a very crowded primary for an at-large congressional district. On top of that, Alaska is working its way through its first election cycle with a top four ranked choice voting system that they adopted in 2020. How is that race looking? So 22 candidates are running in a top four primary for Alaska's at-large U.S. House District. All the candidates will appear on the same ballot, but the top four finishers will advance to a general election using ranked choice voting. This primary coincides with a special ranked choice general election to pick a successor to U.S. Representative Don Young, who died back in March. One Democrat, Mary Peltrola, and two Republicans, Nick Begich and Sarah Palin, are running in that race after Al Gross dropped out after the primary. And let's take a closer look at the Democratic U.S. Senate primary in Wisconsin, which is scheduled for August 9th. 
CNN described this Democratic primary as the last truly unsettled Democratic contest in a competitive general election state. Eight candidates are running. What's the story in the Senate primary? Eight candidates are running in the primary. Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes, Treasurer Sarah Godlewski, Milwaukee Bucks Executive Alex Lastry, and the Utagami County Executive Tom Nelson, who has received the most media attention. And we have Cooley, Stephen Olakara, Peter Pekarski, and Darrell Williams are also running. Good job on mastering all those names. Who's been endorsing these candidates? So the Congressional Black Caucus, U.S. Representative Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, and U.S. Senator Bernie Sanders have all endorsed Barnes, who was elected lieutenant governor in 2018 and served in the state assembly from 2013 to 2017. Emily's List, the National Organization for Women, and former U.S. Representative Steve Kagan endorsed Godlewski, who was elected state treasurer in 2018. Seven Wisconsin labor union chapters and Milwaukee Mayor Cavalier Johnson endorsed Lassery, who is vice president of the MBA's Milwaukee Bucks, who previously worked in the former President Barack Obama's administration. Incumbent U.S. Senator Ron Johnson, first elected in 2010, is seeking re-election. We have his seat, which is one of two held by Republicans up for election this year, in a state Joe Biden won in 2020 for the presidential elections. The other seat is held by U.S. Senator Pat Toomey, who is retiring. I checked our race ratings earlier, and two election forecasters rated that general election as tilt or lean Republican, and one rates it as a toss-up. So it's definitely too early to jump to any conclusions. We're going to move over to New York, where they have a Democratic primary for the 12th Congressional District. And this is an incumbent v. incumbent race, which is always an intriguing result of redistricting. Which incumbents are squaring off? In what is likely to be the cycle's sixth and final incumbent versus incumbent primary, six candidates are seeking the nomination, including U.S. Representative Carolyn Maloney and Jerry Nadler. Both are members of the Congressional Progressive Caucus and describe themselves as progressives. And as far as incumbent versus incumbent primaries go, four incumbents, two Democrats and two Republicans, have lost in these sorts of primaries thus far in this cycle. In addition to New York's 12th district Democratic primary, there is another Democratic primary in Michigan's 11th district featuring U.S. reps Andy Levin and Haley Stevens. And while we're on the subjects, incumbents are always under the microscope during primary season, and most often they do fairly well. Our historical data shows that 12% of state legislative incumbents have lost primary elections and another 8% have been defeated in general elections. How about in recent memory? So generally speaking, recent history hasn't been much of an aberration from the past. From 2010 to 2016, about 13% of state legislative incumbents were defeated by primary challengers. In 2018, about 14% of state legislative incumbents who face a primary challenger were defeated. So not too atypical, but things do get much more interesting if we break up how incumbents have been performing by party. In 2020, 155 state legislative incumbents were defeated in primary elections with 60 Democratic incumbents defeated, meaning just over 12% of all Democratic incumbents who ran in a primary in 2020 lost, and 94 Republican incumbents were defeated, meaning 18% of all Republican incumbents who ran in a primary in 2020 lost. 
You can read more about this year's primaries in our newsletter, Heart of the Primaries, which we've linked in our show notes. And I'd like to thank Mage for coming on and giving us all this insight. Thanks so much for having me again, Victoria. Hey, listeners, this is Jeff Powell here at Ballopedia's Editor-in-Chief. One of the best ways to be an informed voter is by reviewing your ballot before heading off to the polls. And here at Ballopedia, we've tried to make that as simple as possible with our sample ballot tool. With just a few clicks, the sample ballot tool gives you a comprehensive glimpse at what you'll be voting on. Ballopedia includes comprehensive election information for the largest 100 cities by population, as well as statewide and federal elections across the nation. Our coverage scope for local elections continues to grow, and you can use this tool to see what elections we're covering in your area. Click on your candidates to read their biography, view past election results, read their campaign stances, or their responses to our proprietary and unique candidate survey, and more. We also provide election overviews and encyclopedic information on our 300,000 articles and growing fullballpedia.org database. Don't head to the polls this election season without checking out Ballopedia's sample ballot tool. You can find that at ballopedia.org slash sample ballot. Now back to the show. I hope everyone is feeling very gruntled right now because we're back with some footnote facts. I'm assistant staff writer Paul Rader because like the Goo Goo Dolls, I just want you to know who I am. And I'm here to hit you up again with that trivia goodness. But as always, before we begin, here's today's trivia question. What was the first state to implement online voter registration? The answer will be revealed at the end of the show. So this week, we're talking election and voting policies in the states, and this first segment concerns election administration. Here in the U.S., at least, we have a very decentralized system of overseeing elections, though the federal government does have a role. But even when it comes to federal elections, the states have a lot of leeway over how they administer them. But county and municipal governments handle a lot of the -the on-the-ground management of elections. But there has to be somebody at the top, right? Who exactly is the chief election official in each state? Well, just over half of them are elected officials. The most common case is that 24 states have an elected secretary of state that oversees elections. And then for Alaska and Utah, the chief election official is the elected lieutenant governor. But in 24 states, is an appointed official. Maine, New Hampshire, and Texas have their state legislatures choose the chief election official. Then in five states, the governor selects them. Florida, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Texas called their official the Secretary of State, and they have a bunch of non-election duties as well. But in Delaware, it's a more specialized role, and the office is titled Commissioner of Elections. Furthermore, some states actually have more than one person who oversees elections. Nine states use a board or commission. Usually, the appointments to these boards or commissions are made by the governor and confirmed by that state's Senate, and they're most often designed to have officials from multiple political parties. And then in seven states, you see a combination of one chief election official and a board or commission. So that's it for this segment of Footnote Facts. I'll be back later to drop some more knowledge on all you listeners. But for now, we return to the show. State executive offices are made up of elected officials such as governor, attorney general, and secretary of state who enforce state laws. This year, 309 state executive offices are on the ballot in 44 states, which includes 36 gubernatorial elections, 30 attorneys general elections, and 27 secretaries of state elections. Here to help us sort through them all is our very own David Lukes. Excited to be here, Victoria. Thanks for having me. 
yeah, it's your first time. This will be good. To start off, what's the breakdown of who holds power in these offices presently? So yeah, we're looking at 309 offices on the ballot. Currently, Republicans hold 152 of those offices. They're followed by Democrats who have 124. Then the remaining 33 are divided between offices that are officially nonpartisan in statute or offices that are currently held by a third party independent or nonpartisan officeholder. We can call those 33 sort of the miscellaneous. But the overall breakdown is 152 for Republicans, 124 for Democrats, 33 miscellaneous. Got it. So we have 36 governor's offices up for election this year, more than half the country. Is this typical for a midterm election? Yeah, this is very typical for a midterm election year. When it comes to governor's offices and other state executives, midterm election years really are the main event. So not accounting for off-cycle special elections that take place when a governor leaves office early, every state other than Vermont and New Hampshire holds an election for governor every four years. For three states, this is the year before a presidential election, those being Kentucky, Louisiana, and Mississippi. There are nine that hold these in the same year as a presidential election. And then there are also two, New Jersey and Virginia, that hold these elections the year after a presidential election. But the other 34 states all hold their elections in midterm years. And then we have Vermont and New Hampshire, and these two states kind of double dip. They have two-year terms rather than four. And so as a result, they're holding their elections for governor in both presidential and midterm election years. So you throw those two in on top of the 34, and we get 36 governors up for election this year. Currently, there are 28 Republican governors and 22 Democratic. This year, elections for a governor are taking place in 20 states with a Republican governor and 16 with a Democratic governor. Eight of those governors aren't seeking re-election. Can you tell us why that is? That's right. So there are three Democrats and five Republicans who are not seeking re-election this year. And for seven of them, it's simply because they're term limited. The only governor who actually made the choice to not run for another term, despite being eligible to do so, is Charlie Baker. He is the Republican governor of Massachusetts. Now, all of the outgoing Democratic governors, and again, there are three of them, are in states that Joe Biden won in the 2020 presidential election. If we look at the five Republican governors who are outgoing, three of them are also in states that Biden won, those being Arizona, Maryland, and Massachusetts. The remaining two outgoing Republican governors are both in states that voted for Donald Trump, those being Arkansas and Nebraska. The same set of 36 states held elections for governor in 2018. That was generally a year where Democrats made gains nationally. How did the elections for governor turn out that year? So 2018 saw partisan control of eight gubernatorial offices change. So seven of those were states where Democrats won the governorship from Republicans. So this category does include some of the states that we're watching as battlegrounds this year, like Kansas and Michigan. The eighth flip was actually in Alaska, where Republicans actually picked up a seat, defeating the independent governor, Bill Walker. Are we seeing similar numbers for the incumbent attorneys general and secretaries of state who aren't seeking re-election? And how do the incumbent executives typically perform when they do decide to seek another term? So from 2011 to 2021, 64.2% of incumbents did seek re-election. And from 2011 to 2021, 85% of those were successful. So it's a pretty high success rate. Looking at attorneys general and secretaries of state, there are nine open races for attorney general this year. There are four outgoing Democratic incumbents and five outgoing Republicans. There's also a 10th attorney general race where a newcomer is guaranteed at this point, even though it wasn't an open race. That's happening in Oklahoma. 
And what happened there was the Attorney General, John O'Connor, lost in the primary, actually, to a challenger, Gentner Drummond. So regardless of who wins that general election, Drummond and a libertarian candidate are both on the ballot. Either way, it'll be a newcomer in that office. Turning to secretaries of state, there are 11 open races for secretary of state. So this total includes five outgoing incumbents for Democrats and five for Republicans. It also includes the North Dakota secretary of state, Al Yeager. Yeager is technically an independent, although he's often regarded as a Republican incumbent. Now we're going to turn our attention to party affiliation in these offices. So when one party controls all three top ballot offices, governor, attorney general, and secretary of state, we call that a state government triplex. How many state government triplexes are there? So 16 states with Democratic triplexes and another 16 with Republican triplexes are holding elections for at least one of these offices this year. In the other eight states that are holding top ballot elections, there is no single party that holds all three offices. Then we also have 10 states that aren't holding any elections for top ballot office this year. And which of those are battleground elections? And do any of them have all three offices designated as battlegrounds? Yeah. So Ballotpedia has identified gubernatorial elections in 11 states, attorney general elections in six states, and secretary of state elections in five states as battlegrounds. And there are five states where all three of those offices are battlegrounds. Those are Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, and Wisconsin. And of those five states, all except for Nevada, which went to Democrats in both 2016 and 2020, voted for Biden in 2020 after voting for Trump in 2016. And how do the vote totals from the 2020 presidential election compare to the landscape for governor elections this year? Are there any states where the governor's party doesn't match their vote for president? So there are actually seven states where the election results don't match up. Six of those states are states that Joe Biden won in 2020 that have a Republican governor. In fact, All three states electing governors this year that had the highest share of the vote for Biden in 2020 actually have Republican governors. Those are Maryland, Massachusetts, and Vermont. Biden's margin over Donald Trump was more than 33 percentage points in all three of those states. Two other states, Georgia and Arizona, are actually responsible for Biden's narrowest two margins over Trump. On the other hand, Kansas is the only state out of the 36 that has a Democratic governor but that voted for Trump in 2020. Trump carried that state by nearly a 15 percentage point margin that year. Those are some really interesting statistics. Well, that's all I have for you, David. So thank you for coming on and adding some much needed context to these top ballot races across the country. I look forward to having you back to break down the election results later this year. Thank you. Sounds like a plan. Welcome back to Footnote Facts with me, Paul Rader, where the facts are more truthful than Shakira's hips. We're moving on to what kinds of voting and voter registration are available in each state. So first, how about some same-day registration, or SDR for short? 19 states and D.C. allow for voters to register to vote and then cast a ballot on the same day, though two of those only allow it for early voting, which are Montana and North Carolina. But joining this fold on October 1st, 2022, will be Virginia, since their state legislature back in 2020 enacted a bill that would allow for SDR. And for the states that don't have SDR, the deadline to register before an election varies, but it's usually between 8 and 30 days. And in some SDR and non-SDR states, they've implemented automatic voter registration, or AVR for short. 22 states and D.C. have done that, and usually, but not exclusively, AVR is done through DMV records, since that is an easy way to track when someone reaches 18 years old. Then in the vast majority of states, there is the option of online voter registration, 
42 states in D.C. offer that, with Oklahoma and Maine in the process of implementing it. Now, naturally, this brings us to the act of voting itself. As of July 2022, Alabama, Connecticut, Mississippi, and New Hampshire are the only states that do not offer regular in-person early voting, though eligible absentee voters may be able to do so. Speaking of which, every state offers absentee voting, but only 35 of them do not require someone to have an excuse for requesting an absentee ballot. No Excuses also happens to be a great song from my favorite band, Alice in Chains. Very important information to know. And then eight of those No Excuse absentee states automatically mail ballots to eligible voters without the need to request one. And some other states allow for certain elections or jurisdictions to go all mail. That's it for part two of the trivia. Today's last segment of Footnote Facts will be on ballot measures concerning voting policy. Until then, it's back to the show. Staying on top of politics can feel like a full-time job. Here at Ballotpedia, our team updates hundreds of pages on our site each and every day. Nobody in their right mind would want to comb through them all. And thanks to Ballotpedia's newsletters, you'll never have to. We have over a dozen different newsletters, like the weekly Hall Pass, which will keep you plugged into the conversations driving school board politics and education policy. Here's a highlight from the July 20th edition of Hall Pass. A feature of school board meetings this year has been whether certain books addressing topics related to sex and gender identity are age appropriate and ought to be included in school libraries. Debate at school board meetings has often centered on a handful of books, such as Gender Queer, a memoir, which was written for young adults in the style of a comic book. The Chicago Tribune editorial board writes that removing such books would be harmful to students and prevent them from exploring different perspectives and expanding their knowledge. The board also says the books are not pornographic, so parents do not need to protect their children from the material. Caitlin Richardson of the Washington Examiner disagrees, writing that books like Gender Queer, a memoir, contain sexually explicit material that is not age-appropriate for minors and promotes progressive ideas over educational value. Richardson says, removing explicit content from school libraries is not the same as book banning or censorship. She says it is the job of parents to control the books their kids read in the same way they control the movies they watch and what video games they play. To read more about the debate, go to Ballotpedia.org and find the email updates tab or use the link in our show notes to sign up for the Hall Pass newsletter or to check out our other newsletters. And now for the grand finale of today's Footnote Facts with me, Paul Rader. We're talking more about voting policy, but this time... Let's look at some ballot measures. So as of July 2022, we have at least three voting policy measures on the ballot, and we see those in Alabama, Arizona, and Connecticut. Now, Alabama's measure is pretty general in scope, where passes by voters means that future legislation changing the conduct of a general election must be implemented at least six months prior to the affected general election. The measures for Arizona and Connecticut are more narrowly focused. Passing Arizona's measure would mean changes to the state's voter ID and mail-in ballot policies, such as requiring dates of birth and voter ID numbers for mail-in ballots. And then Connecticut's measure is even more straightforward. I mentioned in the last trivia segment that Connecticut is one of the few states without regular in-person early voting, but that will no longer be the case if that state's voters pass the Allow for Early Voting Amendment. Pretty straightforward name. But there are some other measures that have submitted signatures and might be on the ballot this year as well, but they're not there yet. States with such measures include Missouri, where an initiative seeks to implement a top four ranked choice voting system similar to what was just implemented in Alaska. 
and Nevada, where the initiative would implement a top five ranked choice voting system. So we'll see if these and voting policy measures in other states are also approved for the ballot. And for a really random historical ballot measure, let's turn back the clock to the 19th century during the Gilded Age of American history. So in 1887 in Texas, Proposition 4 would have authorized the state legislature to provide for voter registration in cities with over 10,000 people. But it was defeated then, though basically the same measure came back to the ballot just four years later in 1891, where it then passed with 78% of the vote. Now, hold your breath no longer because I'm finally answering that trivia question I asked you earlier in the show. That question was, what was the first state to implement online voter registration? And if your response is Arizona, you are correct. Arizona led the way back in 2002. Washington was next to implement it in 2008. You know what? You decide how many points you get this time for the correct answer. Don't give yourself too many, though, because that's a bad look. But that does it for this episode's Footnote Facts. I'll be back next week to bring you more. But to close things out on this episode, we send it back to our podcast host extraordinaire, Victoria Rose. Thanks, Paul, but I don't know about extraordinaire. That's all for this week's episode of On the Ballot. Thanks again to Mij, David, and Paul for coming on the show. Make sure you don't miss an episode by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll be back next week to discuss trifecta vulnerability as well as abortion-related ballot measures. If you have any questions, comments, or love for BP, feel free to send it to us at ontheballot at ballotpedia.org or on Twitter at Ballotpedia. I'm Victoria Rose, and thanks for listening. 